All right, Acts 8 again today. Acts 8, 1 through 13 will be our text. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is like a great diamond with many facets on it, and we want to look over it and turn it over and over again and look at each new facet and new light. Uh, your word is like a, a piece of candy in our mouth, which we turn over and over, finding the same sweetness with every turn. Lord, we meditate on your word and on your precepts. With all the distractions of the world around us, would you fix our eyes on your ways? Permit us to do so for even this short time here this morning. Let us set aside our cares and our burdens. Actually, let us take our cares and burdens and submit them to the word. Help us to wash them in the clarifying truth of your word. Surely a lot of the things that we carry and the burdens that we carry are unnecessary. They're mud that could be washed away and lighten our load. So we just spend a few moments this morning meditating on your word and fixing our eyes on your ways. May Christ himself be the ultimate object of our attention. Our apprehension of him is the greatest treasure. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to read God's word. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. <laughs> But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. I'm betting on the fact that you all do this too and that I won't look foolish, but when I'm in the car by myself half the time, it's sort of a strange...
stream of conscious, subconscious, incoherent thought coming out of my mouth. I just say stupid things for no reason. You all do that, right? I'm not alone. <laughs> uh, my boss, Ross Mark, has had a bear getting into his stuff at at the ranch, and he's given me permission to hunt the bear. So Thursday night, I jumped in my Subaru and started heading up there and started muttering to myself, absentmindedly saying something like, I'm going to shoot the bear, gut the bear, skin the bear, butcher the bear, freeze the bear, thaw the bear, cook the bear, eat the bear. (laughs) I started thinking to myself about this strategy Realize, Zach, you're missing a very important part of the plan. Before you can shoot the bear, you have to find the bear. <laughs> Needless to say, I haven't even seen the bear. Uh, so a series of ideas isn't much help if we don't plan out the contents of that, those series of ideas, if we don't understand the contents. My first step of shooting the bear, there's a lot contained within this one step of the whole process. Shooting the bear, there's a lot of things that go into that. Likewise, in our pursuit of God, we often have a list of things we're going to do in service to him. But we just sort of assume the more basic steps. Know the Lord, be kind to my neighbors. Tell them about Jesus, volunteer, do works of mercy. Wait, wait, wait. Back up. Know the Lord. Are we assuming we know what that means? To know the Lord. Do we know the most basic of these steps? Do we follow the most basic? Do we know the contents? Do we open up the box of that statement to know the Lord and look at what's inside and examine the contents? In Acts, it's easy to get caught up in the excitement of the growth of the church, the expansion of of discipleship and the kingdom, examining the details of what exactly they were doing and their strategy. And we can forget that the real power was in the content of the message they were preaching. The content of the message they were preaching. So I want to kind of... Next week, we're going to actually take a step back and look at Acts chapter 8, or next time, but Acts 8 and, and, and Simon the Sorcerer and all of those things in chapter 8 of Acts. But this morning, I want to kind of narrow in on this one idea, um, and that idea and that question is, what was Philip and what were the other scattered Christians, what were they preaching? What is the content of their message? Because it's so easy to... Skip over that. They're preaching the gospel. What does the gospel mean? So what were they preaching? That's what I want to narrow in on today. In our passage, the passage, the, me- the message uh, of Philip and the others is described in five ways. The first of those five ways is that it was the word. The word in verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. One of the most amazing things about the message of Jesus is he uses ordinary men and women to proclaim it, to spread it, to bring it where he wants it to go. 
Some, of course, it seems according to Scripture, are uniquely called, set apart, and even ordained for that task of preaching and teaching. But everyone who is a Christian, who is a disciple of Christ, is also a witness of Christ and is able and called to testify about Jesus. So it was those who were scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution that went about. The word is literally gospelizing. And what were they gospelizing? He says that it was the word. They were preaching the word. There's authority in this idea, in this word, the word. Our, our website for our church has a tab called Teachings. It's where we put our recordings of the messages. And the lady who helped me work on the website some actually put that in there. And I never changed it, but I never really liked that word, Teachings. Of course, proclaiming the word involves teaching a lot of teaching. But but teaching is the process of conveying information about a subject from one person to another. Preaching is more a heralding of a message. It carries with it a force of authority. So when it says they were gospelizing the word, there's authority in that. They were preaching the word. And where does the authority come from? Well, I can tell you it doesn't come from me when I'm preaching. It doesn't come from you when you're talking to people about God and about the word. The authority comes from the sender, the one who sends the messenger. Uh, this week I got a rundown from my boss about the drywall project we're working on. and My coworker wasn't in the room. But when he came in, I gave him the rundown that I got. And so far as my rundown represented my boss's words and intent it was as good to my coworker as if as if my boss had told him right so the authority comes from not the messenger but the one who sends the messenger this is why the reformed tradition has so emphasized the preaching of the word as the primary means of grace there's a power and authority in preaching the word that we don't get from other forms of communication. And while I think the primary preaching of the word takes place by preachers on the Lord's day in the assembly, that means of grace of preaching the word is not limited to that time and place of that person. Far from it. God blesses men and women with missionary and evangelistic zeal to, to herald the word wherever they may be. And that too is a preaching of the word. A gospelizing of the word. And you don't have to be on a street corner to, with a sign you know, to herald the word or in a pulpit. Any accurate scriptural truth about Christ, no matter how long, how short, how loud, how quiet, how eloquent, how halting, is the word of Christ. And it carries with it weight and authority the weight and authority of the one who sent the message through you and through me. So together with the Holy Spirit, this is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. So what these scattered men and women were doing was preaching, gospelizing the word, sending out the word. That was the first way they described the message. Luke Luke describes the message here to the Samaritans. Uh, The second way is he describes it as good news. 
good news. He says in verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached the good news. I think if you have evangelistic nervousness, which I do, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the gospel has both bad and good news in it. And we don't want to be the bearer of bad news. We don't want to be the kind of Debbie Downer person. We don't want to be the doom and gloom guy amongst our friends. Because probably we won't have friends if we are always the doom and gloom guy. Compounding the issue, our society seems to be so underwhelmed by the holiness of God. Sin is minimized or redefined out of existence. And it's hard to tell people that there's a means of escape from the just wrath of God when there's so little fear of the Lord, so little belief in the wrath of God. It's like we have to overcome that hurdle first. I'm not even asking the question, how can I be made right with the God whom I have offended? But I am struck by the fact that we do have the answer to their brokenness, to the ills, to the confusion of the world around us. So many in our society, I've noticed, are really adept at at discerning what the problem is and asking lots of great questions, and so few have answers. I was listening to a podcast the other day from some PCA church planners, and they were commenting on, why do we want reformed churches to be planted? And, and, you know, isn't the the whole thing about reformed churches is they just go and, and serve Reform people. And, and one guy made a really good point. He says, you know, the Reformed faith answers hard questions. It answers the questions that the world should be asking, even if they're not. For example, isn't it amazing that the very first question in our shorter catechism, written for children, answers probably the most profound philosophical question a person can ask. Why are we here? What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We have answers. We have answers to the world's problems. So one accurate way to look at the condition of the world is to see the world around us as just uh, a bunch of rebels and God-haters. And I think that is accurate. At the same time, another accurate way to look at the condition of the world is to see the unbelieving world around us as captive to the forces of evil deluded into thinking that his cause is a good one. I imagine a, like a child soldier, you know, that maybe his parents were killed when he was five by a band of marauders and, and they draft him into their service. And that, that's tragic, of course. But if you talk to that same kid when he became 20, what do you think the odds are that he'd be spouting the same rhetoric they were when they killed his parents? He's captive, but he believes his captors. That's kind of how we can look at the world as well. We do have the possessions in our weapons of warfare to spring deluded captives from the service of the devil and slavery and to heal the wounds that were obtained in years of captivity. And those weapons, primarily the word, deliver a devastating blow to the enemy because the enemy is... Yes, those who hate the gospel, but primarily the principalities, the authorities, the spiritual forces of darkness. Those are our enemy. The gospel is healing and destructive good news. 
like in Calvin Miller's book on preaching, he's talking in this paragraph about preaching to the people in church, but I think it's probably even more applicable to the people in the world when he says, the Sunday service is a gathering of troubles. Half of those who enter the church and take their seat before the pulpit are moving in a privatized fog of their own ills. You relate to that? Sometimes the person in the pulpit is in a fog of his own ills. He says, in the words of Thoreau, they are living lives of quiet desperation. They are dying anonymous. They are, their ills are real to them, yet they can confuse the untrained pastor because they keep up the appearance of having their lives in tow. And we all pretend our lives are in tow. None of our lives really is. How much more so for the world? The people we have the opportunity to speak the good news of the gospel to need the gospel. They need good news. They may not know just how bad off they are, but they know for certain they are bad off in one way or another. And the gospel is good news. It has the power to rescue them. I think kind of of Kelly's symptoms and we don't know what's underlying them. So the, the gospel doesn't always immediately address the surface level symptoms like we would want it to. But it does identify the base problem. And in fact, it goes in and it starts to heal the base problem. And the gospel gives us hope that one day the base problem of sin and all its consequences will be erased. So the gospel is good news. It's objectively good news. Whether some hear it as the stench of death in their nostrils or some hear it as, and smell it as the sweet smell of life, it is objectively good news. I'm going to combine the third and fourth description of the message. Uh, Luke adds some specificity to the contents of the good news. What, what is it about? He says it's about the kingdom and the name. The kingdom and the name. In verse 12 again, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. I, I just wonder what kind of things Philip was saying. It would be nice to have a transcript of some of his messages. What did he say to the Samaritans? What did he say to them about the kingdom, for example? As the Samaritans and the Jews were squabbling over who was the rightful people of God, whether it was the northern region, Shechem, Mount Gerizim, or, or the southern Jerusalem and the temple. Where, where is the rightful holy land? Who are the people of God? And here comes Philip, a Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, now a Hellenistic Christian, telling them about what the kingdom of God really is. I mean, it's almost hilarious the way God orchestrates all these sort of ethnic details. Probably much to the surprise of the Samaritans, Philip did not announce that Jerusalem was the high place of all God's dealings with man. In fact, in essence, God had just judged Jerusalem by removing Christians from Jerusalem. And now here Samaria is listening where Jerusalem didn't. Remember Jesus saying, if the works that were done in you or were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would be better off than um, than uh, <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same kind of thing. The works that were done in Jerusalem were done in Jerusalem. 
they didn't listen now they're being done in Samaria so Jerusalem is being judged here but neither did Philip affirm Mount Gerizim or Samaria as God's holy place Luke tells us that Philip's good news has a tandem focus the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and those two things can't be separated the center place peace that the high place the temple the kingdom of god it's all contained in a single person the name of jesus the christ all who believe on that name the name of jesus christ will be members of the kingdom of god and rightful heirs to the promises of abraham and and the patriarchs and moses kingdom citizenship will not be determined by ethnicity or geography but by union with the king by faith all those who believe will be made participants in the familial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I got to think he was preaching something along those lines and, and we can't pass this moment up without reading from John 4 because Jesus preached pretty much that exact same message to the Samaritan woman at the well. So if you want to turn over there John 4 and we'll begin in verse 19. John 4, beginning in 19, the woman, the Samaritan woman, said to him, to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. The Samaritan fathers worshipped on Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and, and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. That comment leads us to the final descriptor of the message. The fifth one, which is that he is the Christ. The content of the message was about the Christ. In verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ. This too would have been interesting to hear how Philip preached the Christ to the Samaritans. Um, clearly the Samaritans had a theology of Messiah. The woman at the well very obviously expected a Messiah to come. But the Samaritans only believed in the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Samaritan Pentateuch of the Bible. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The meaning of the word is anointed one or chosen one. Throughout the Old Testament, people were anointed by God to fulfill roles like prophet, priest, and king. The Jews and the Samaritans both had expectations of an anointed one who would come as a savior and as a deliverer of the people of God. And of course, Jesus fulfills all those roles, prophet, priest, king. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. 
But the, the Samaritans lacked the fullness of the Old Testament. Uh, like the promise to David that a king would be seated on his throne forever. They, they just had the Pentateuch, the first five books, or, or what's often been called the Gospel of Isaiah, and all its messianic promises. They didn't have that. But still, Philip would have had a lot to go on from the Pentateuch to preach the Christ. For example, Jesus is the one who crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the reason for the rainbow. Jesus is the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus is both Isaac and the ram. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Jesus is the pillar of cloud and the fire in the wilderness. He's the water from the rock. He's the manna. He's the tabernacle. He's everything. Everything pointed to him, even from the Pentateuch. There's so much to go on. Jesus is the Christ. So the content of the message, Philip and the other scattered Christians went into Samaria and preached a message of good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. This was the word of the gospel. Now, what do we do with all the contents of this message of Philip? I mean, do we believe in the contents of this message. Not do we assent vaguely to their truthfulness. Like yeah I've read something about Jesus. In the Nicene Creed. And I think that sounds good. But do we delight in it for ourselves. Are these messages the core message. And the driver of our lives. I was listening to something this week. It's a hunting podcast. And. and one week there's a detailed documentary style episode and the following week the host gets together with his friends and family and talks about that week's episode. And they just finished up a three-part series on Daniel Boone. And the driving question behind the series was, in what ways has Daniel Boone and others like him influenced the American spirit in ways we feel but don't know? Toward the end of the series, the host was talking with a friend and scholar who had lived in China for years. And he, he said that on the weekends, he'd pack up his family and go off into the wilderness, into the mountains. And his Chinese friends thought he was weird. He started to notice this sort of independent, free spirit sort of connection to nature is really an American ideal more than it is like a Chinese ideal. They were drawing this contrast between the society that identified itself in more communal aspects as opposed to the rugged, rugged individualistic American spirit. And I started to notice a lot of the things that they were describing sounded a lot like me. <laughs> some of the things that they're saying came from Daniel Boone and some of these other folks have trickled down to me, and I didn't ever think about it that way. So the host got to me. He got his point across. Then the following week's review of the episode, the host's wife was commenting on this very thing. And it's not a Christian podcast, but you can tell the host and his family are Christians. And she was saying, our family is really proud to be where, from where we're from. Hillbilly's from Arkansas. But we try in our home to, to communicate to our kids that those identities are not our primary identities. But our, our faith is what governs our lives. 
So it's interesting to hear her think through the same things I was thinking as I was listening to the episode. All of that to make this point is that all kinds of messages and things inform us, inform our identities, inform the ways we think and live. But are the message and the contents of the gospel the driving force of our thoughts and our identities? Or are they kind of an addendum, a footnote, a stamp, a check mark? Are we just assuming we'll shoot the bear? I don't know if this will make sense to you, but I have a friend who says jokingly all the time, yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, 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 all that. Do we just, yeah, yeah, all that, the gospel? The good news of the kingdom, yeah, yeah, all that. The name of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm really trying to get my life together, you know, work out, eat well, be present with my relationships, especially my relationship with God, and be more focused at work. Wait, go back. Especially my relationship with God. What do you mean by that? We just kind of, yeah, yeah, all that, that portion of our lives. But how does it impact your daily life? What does the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ mean to you? I find it's a difficult thing to answer because a lot of it has to do with the more amorphous parts of our lives. Our thoughts, our wills. Our affections and desires, those are a bit less concrete than like, what do you do for a living? We live in a time and place where what we believe is not what matters, but is marginalized. The the things we believe are private matters as long as we do conform to the ever-changing social norms. But Christianity is primarily interested in what you believe, in what you think. And of course, doing follows belief, but... It's primarily interested in what we believe. What we believe unites us to Christ or doesn't. Or conversely, what we believe removes us from the presence of God. So our religion, our faith is a faith in which doing follows belief. Belief is primary. And the church becomes so distracted by all the kind of do, do, do's that we forget our calling, our chief do, which is to preach the gospel and make disciples. The church is not first a ministry of distribution of material goods or social causes or environmental causes. The church is a a ministry of message. We're a, a publishing house or a newsstand. With one primary author and one unchanging message and a whole bunch of paper boys. This still leaves the question, if we're calling ourselves to focus our lives around the content of the gospel, what does that look like in our lives? And again, I struggle to answer the question because in one sense, the answer is enormous. It's all of life. Believing the gospel, delighting in its contents, is an all-of-life, moment-by-moment activity. So what do I say? Like, look toward the ideal Christian and become just like Jesus? That's still sort of amorphous and frustratingly unattainable for me. What does it look like? Or do I focus on the basic Christian duties of life? Attending church, partaking of the word, midweek study, family personal devotions, prayer, evangelism... 
Do, do the work of your vocation with joy because you're serving the Lord Christ. Serve your family with Christ-like selflessness and humility. Die to the fear of man and self-preservation and tell people around you the message of the gospel. And of course, all these things are true, but they each take their own sermon series to unpack. So I just kind of want to chew on one idea, one thought that will help us process applying the gospel, the contents of the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ to our daily lives. I want to think about the relationship between belief and action when it comes to the Great Commission. Or another way we could put it is the relationship between becoming a disciple and discipling others. Um, I don't use like biblical Hebrew on a daily basis. You may be surprised to know. <laughs> so, and if you ever learned another language, you know that as you sleep at night, it all trickles out your ear pretty rapidly. Um, but all of a sudden, I'll tell you, I have an irresistible compulsion to really study Hebrew again. Why? Because I have to teach Hebrew at the school. One aspect of the Christian life in Christ's church is that each of us is called not only to be a disciple, but to make disciples. And making disciples involves helping them along by instructing them in the teachings of Christ. So you you and I may be able to kind of hobble along in our Christian lives, as I do when I'm looking at Hebrew in the Old Testament, without knowing very much about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, for example. But what if we have to help others understand what it means to be the Christ? James warns that not many of you should become teachers, for they will be held to a stricter judgment. I think he's talking there about formal teachers in the church. Because in Hebrews we read in 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And in Titus 2, Paul calls the older women to teach what is good and so train young women. So you may not be an evangelist or a dude on the street, but you can disciple. Indeed, you're called to disciple if you are a Christian, unless perhaps you're a baby Christian. But a keen awareness of that calling of the need to disciple will propel you forward in your own discipleship, in your own understanding of the application of the gospel. You don't have to have like a, you don't have to be the Pied Piper, <laughs> people following you. You might disciple your children or, or a, a family member or your wife or whomever. We're all called to our own callings as far as discipleship goes, but we have the opportunity, we have the good news of the gospel. So the charge for this morning is don't assume you'll shoot the bear. We have a gospel worth believing. If it's a gospel worth believing, it's worth knowing. And if it's worth knowing, it's worth sharing. And if it's worth sharing, it's worth believing. May the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ be the controlling center of all our lives. Amen.